have been for these last almost 40 years now, combining the notion of exploring the subjects of religion, faith, and spirituality, and using the lens that I do that with as television and film production. So I realized that, um, that I get the invitations, the opportunities to sit down and have conversations with people like Desmond Tutu or Billy Graham or Mother Teresa, uh, not because I'm interested in them, which I am, but because they know that I'm a filmmaker and that filmmaking gives me a card and an opportunity. The door opens wide then when they, when they hear about that. And that, that's what makes the engagements even possible. And for me, for these last near 40 years now, it's just been a, a magnificent journey. Welcome to Intersections, where we navigate the crossroads of ideas, mapping the contours of belief and knowledge through the stories and lives of influential voices. On each episode, we visit with notable individuals in various fields who are asking important questions and as experiences and perspectives challenge us to pursue lives of meaning and purpose. In the last 20 years, documentary filmmaking has exploded. Innovative filmmakers use the medium to explore social issues, tackle challenging environmental problems, illuminate historical events and personalities, and identify connections to larger questions of meaning and purpose. A good documentary takes viewers on a journey where they meet individuals and observe experiences that open them up to new ways of understanding themselves and the world we live in. What drives a filmmaker's aesthetic sensibility and how do they navigate the tension between fairly exploring complex topics while also sharing their unique vision and perspective? Martin Doblemeyer is an award-winning documentary filmmaker whose many films have been featured on public television. His films have explored the beliefs and values underlying various social and political initiatives, such as the civil rights movement, social justice activism, and the role spirituality plays in the lives of inspirational leaders. His films have included Bonhoeffer, profiling the life of the German Christian pastor and theologian who was killed for opposing Hitler during World War II. Spiritual Audacity, focusing on the life and social activism of the Jewish rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel and Chaplains, a moving look at the hands-on work of religious chaplains in a variety of American institutions. Martin received a degree in religious studies from Providence College in Rhode Island and earned a Master of Science degree in broadcast journalism from Boston University. Martin Doblemeyer, welcome to Intersections. Well, th Seth, thank you so much for having me. I, I look forward to our conversation. Thank you. Um, well, as a documentary filmmaker um, for the past, what, 40 years you've been making films for? Not quite, but yeah, just about 40 years. Yeah. About 40 years. What, what, what for you makes a good documentary film? Uh, I'm sorry, your, your question totally cut out, so I couldn't hear it. Sure. What, what makes a good documentary film for you? Oh, I, I think, first of all, it, it needs to be a good story. I mean, fundamentally, we're uh, documentary filmmakers. They're truth tellers, hopefully. Uh, they see truth through their own lens, but I also think it has to be a good story. And, and especially if you hope to do what we do, which is to try to bring the story in the film to a large television audience, a larger audience. And that requires a couple of important traits. Number one, that it has to speak to a universal character. Uh, what are those universal characters that people are looking to sort of question in their own lives? So what's common about the characters or the storyline that you're telling in your film that's going to relate to everybody out there? Uh, that's the first thing. And then, and then second of all, I think you have to take into consideration that I, I think in the 21st century, uh, people have so many, they're, they're, they're so used, I think, rhythmically to being told that if they don't get it within the first few minutes, they're probably going to move on. 
And that's the reality that I live with in terms of making a television show, uh, because I know that people are literally sitting by at home with a remote control in their hand. And if they don't buy into what you're doing in the first few minutes, click, they're gone. And um, I'm, I've trained myself over the last number of years to, 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 take a, to take a story and to sort of pack the front of it so that people get a sense of where it is that we're going to be going over this next hour or two hours and give them a sample of that, get them intrigued, and then begin to lay out the, car, the course of the film. And I, and I think for me, that's, it's, it's proven the best way to do this. Hmm. Could you talk a little bit about your upbringing and how you got interested in making documentaries? Well, my background um, is, my, my interest really, uh, Seth, is first of all in religion. Um, I went to undergraduate school in Providence College, as you mentioned in the intro, I studied religion, uh, multi, you know, religious faith traditions, and it fascinated me. I just couldn't stop, couldn't stop being interested in it. Uh, and then I added to that shortly afterwards a degree in, um, in television and filmmaking. So I have been for these last almost 40 years now, combining the notion of exploring the, the subjects of religion, faith, and spirituality, and using the lens that I do that with as television and film production. So I realized that, um, that I get the invitations, the opportunities to sit down and have conversations with people like Desmond Tutu or Billy Graham or Mother Teresa, uh, not because I'm interested in them, which I am, but because they know that I'm a filmmaker and that filmmaking gives me a card and an opportunity. The door opens wide then when they, when they hear about that. And that, that's what makes the engagements even possible. And for me, for these last near 40 years now, it's just been a, it's been a magnificent journey. Hmm. Could you talk about this connection that you see? I noticed that you got your undergraduate degree, residence studies, journalism, master's in journalism. Um, how do you see them connecting? How do you see the connection between religion and journalism? Uh, well, journalism is is about trying to understand the world around us and then unpacking that in such a way that you can explain it and highlight the most important points of it to the wider public. And th that's a special skill. That's a special tool. But I don't think that's really that far apart from the, the skill of being able to interpret religious content. Hmm. So um, I find that when I was in graduate school study, studying for uh, broadcast journalism, I was with people um, who were using, who was honing their communication skills uh, at the same time they were honing the area of expertise that they wanted to talk about. So I had people who were already determining that they were going to be journalists and telling stories about business, journalists telling stories about the environment, journalists and telling stories about sports. And as they were concurrently trying to get better as a journalist, they were also trying as best as they could to develop those backgrounds and those expertise in those other areas like sports and entertain, entertainment news or in uh, the environment or whatever it is. And my particular area was religion. And um, religion is a communication skill. I, I take that. But also journalism began to help me to understand how I could sift through what I thought was the truth that needed to be told and then be able to have a vehicle th through which I could tell it, I could, I could express that. Hmm. Did you have a religious background growing up? I did. I had uh, actually a pretty intense religious background. I was born and raised Roman Catholic. Um, I, uh, my mother and father were devout Roman Catholics. Um, and interestingly enough, Seth, uh, later on in life, as I got to be in my 20s, I witnessed them sort of drifting away and questioning the, the, their own faith. Hmm. And so I went through in some ways a process of watching them 
accepting what they had seen throughout their whole lives, accepting it. And then as they got older into their 50s and 60s, uh, start to question everything. And I think I sort of accompanied them in some ways on that journey. I began to question a lot of things too. So I uh, am born and raised Roman Catholic. That's something that's in your bones. It doesn't really ever leave. But uh, the, the fact of the matter is that I spend most of my time in other denominations, congregations with other, other minds. And I, I think that only enriches me. I'm, I'm really grateful for the opportunity that I've had to spend plenty of time, not only with people from the Catholic tradition, but some of the wisest minds out there in so many different traditions. So you would no longer consider yourself a Roman Catholic? I, I do. I do consider myself Roman Catholic. I self-identify as Roman Catholic, but I do actually spend more time in other faith traditions, uh, learning, seeking, engaging, discussing, consulting with other people. I see. And um, 1983. You know, I know that's not a real necessarily the kind of answer that you're thinking about, but I but w w identify myself as a. Uh, as you would say, look, I, I identify myself as an American, I, clearly as an American, but I spent a considerable amount of time in my life in other countries, enjoyed them, gained from them, learned from them as best as I could. If you ask me what I am, I'm an American. Uh, I, I think in the same ways, I think I would have to say I spend a lot of time outside the Catholic faith tradition. But if you ask me, what are you? How would you self-identify? The answer is I'm Roman Catholic. So I'm sure that grid then affects how you do film, how you make films, your faith kind of influencing the work that you do. I'm sorry, could you repeat the question again? So your, your Catholic faith then is, is part is influences the work that you do. Oh, I, I think that um, I, I have, a, have an appreciation uh, just growing up in it uh, with ritual, with commitment, expectations. Uh, and, a, and a sense of authority. Um, all of those things I have questioned at times in my own life, I have to say, uh, and yet at, the, at different periods in my life, I've, I've learned to appreciate them. So these are the kinds of things I think that, uh, that make me both question the faith that I was raised in, and yet at the same time, find the things that are rooted in that faith tradition that I can appreciate. I have some of, the, some of my dearest friends are Roman Catholic, and they're very much um, people who question the tradition, who challenge the tradition, trying to move it forward, get frustrated when it doesn't move forward, uh, call it to be a better reflection of itself, call it to be a better reflection of what it, it wants to be. Um, those are the kind of people that I like to hang around with, talk about, and see whether or not through filmmaking, I can help in some small way contributing to that. Hmm. So in, in 1983, you created your own film company, uh, Journey Films. Could you talk about the creation of Journey Films? And is there a significance with the name of your company? Ah, company? Well, it, well uh, yes, of course. I mean, we're all on a journey. We're all on a personal journey. Uh, we do travel a lot. So I guess that's all sort of in sync with what it is that we're trying to do. I just liked the name. I thought it was great. I was disappointed when the rock band decided they wanted to call themselves Journey. So now everybody's tight. The first thing that comes up on Google is Journey, the rock band, but <laughs> but I, I, have to, I, I can accept that, I guess. And um, we started in 1983 because I really wanted to try to, to figure out how to tell these stories that I was really interested in telling in, in a larger, into a larger audience. That's really what it was all about. And um, uh, the, the first film I made was about a man who I so admired. His name was Jean Vanier. Uh, and he had begun these homes for men and women 
with mental handicaps. These were people who were mentally retarded, but he was combining people who were committed to building community with the, the people who needed to have community to support them because of their, their, their handicaps, their, their learning disabilities. And um, I spent weeks living in the community in France with Jean Vanier. And I, I felt as though he was one of the most saintly people I had ever met. How did I find him? I was sent there by Mother Teresa. Hmm. I had the privilege of doing an interview with Mother Teresa, the first interview she ever did after she came to the United States after winning the Nobel Prize for Peace. Hmm. And I asked for an interview with her and I was the only one that got one. I was just, I was picked. I, you know, she, you know, the sisters at the community liked me, they knew me and they liked me. And they said, we're gonna, Mother Teresa is gonna do one interview when she comes to America. And we've decided it's gonna be you. And I, I got to spend time with Mother Teresa. And when I asked her at the end of the interview, I said, you know, I'd like to do more films about people that, you, that, I'm, that I, I can look to as morally solid people, people of integrity, doing really wonderful, godly-like things. Who would you suggest? And she said, you must go to France and you must work with Jean Vanier in France. And uh, sure enough, within a year or so, we were going to France and, and doing the story on Jean Vanier. Uh, do you want to know the last part of this story that I'm just telling? Sure. Uh, after doing all these years, Seth, of his incredible work, helping handicapped people, building community, translating that into books about how to build community, where the weakest member of the community is at the center of the community. Hmm. Um, Jean Vanier dies at the age of 90, just uh, two years ago now. Hmm. And about a year after Jean Vanier dies, um, he's got he's received all of these honorary degrees. The Pope's written to him saying, we admire the work that you do. All of this acclaim that he's received worldwide. Um, it's discovered that he had been abusive towards some of the females on his staff. Not to the handicapped people, but to the women, some women on his staff. And this came out uh, by his own community's confession about what had happened. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, and then this whole thing started to spiral out of control. Uh, institutions and organizations, um, universities that had given them degrees now were claiming them back. Uh, he was being disavowed. And this really sent me uh, on a real spin uh, for a lot of reasons, because, I, I, you know, he was the first film I ever did. Mm. And so much of our identity in those first years of Journey films was around celebrating the work of Jean Vanier. He was as godlike in my eyes as anybody I had, had met in so long, devoted all of his life to taking care of handicapped people. And yet this other side of him, this darker side of him finally did come out after his passing. So it's, it's made me a little bit more suspect uh, before we go and sort of run and you know, create a hagiography around somebody to realize that as human beings, many have failures. Not everything that you see on the surface winds up being exactly what's going on. Uh, and also too, finally, this one taught me a lesson um, that we want to believe, all of us want to believe deeply that as we get older, we become pretty good judges of character. And every once in a while, you realize that no matter how schooled we are in the judging of character, you begin to realize that you know, you too can miss. Yeah. You cannot see something that's right there in front of you. You can be blind to it. So uh, it, it hurt deeply when this, these revelations came out. So, but, but I, I think uh, 
I think that's the subject of our first film. And I think in for, our, for many different reasons now, it's one of the most ex memorable experiences I've ever had in, in this path over the last 40 years. Yeah, I remember reading about that uh, about a year or so ago about him. And um, I was just curious how when you, when that came out, did that shake your faith particularly when you heard that news? Didn't my, it didn't shake my faith in God. It, shaked, it, it shook my faith in myself and in how I look at others and how I attach credential to others that not necessarily always is there. So I didn't believe in God in any less. I, I didn't, can't say that, but I certainly believe that I had to be a little bit more, I, I, I needed to be a little bit more suspect in the people that um, I would anoint as sort of doing the great work that God does. Not that the work that he was doing to the, for the handicapped people wasn't, but on that other side, there was a darker side to Jean Vanier that, that sadly has, has to be brought forward to. Yeah. You're listening to KSQD Santa Cruz, and the program here is Intersections. And we're talking this evening with Martin Dobelmeyer, who is a documentary filmmaker. His work has been on public television over the many years. Um, your films, uh, Martin, often look at uh, questions of value and meaning, um, the moral good. For instance, you highlight some figures in the civil rights movement, uh, like Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, Howard Thurman, an African-American Christian theologian. In what, ways, in what ways do you focus on having your films express your own values and understanding of the common good? Uh, that's a tough question. I, I think I would be... Uh... I think I'd be simple-minded if I didn't say that the, the films that you make uh, express some of what you're trying to aspire to in terms of how you see the common good and what needs to be done about creating a better common good for everyone. Um, I, these, these films that I do have a purpose. Uh, I'm not trying to evangelize people. I really am not. It's not my job to sort of convert someone to a particular faith. Uh, I, I, God will do that. I, I don't have to do that work, thank God. But the truth of the matter is that I think these films are intended specifically to be able to tell stories about people and how they see their God and what that understanding of their God propels them to do, makes them do. stories that we did uh, just most recently was on the Catholic social activist Dorothy Day. She's one of the greatest examples of somebody who searched for God in her own way for a long time. Wasn't until her 30s that she actually felt as though she got some real traction for how she could understand God. And what happened? She devoted the next 50 years of her life to doing some of the most remarkable caring work for those people who have been left alone, have been left to fall into the cracks of our society and culture. So uh, my, my story is about part of her journey, how she got to that point, but then also to what that sense of God call in her life called her to do and the good things that came from it. So where I'm not trying to convert people to a particular faith, I am trying to say that, look what's happened to some people who've actually had this particular kinds of experiences. Bonhoeffer's the same way. Um, Howard Thurman, uh, also, you know, in, in his own way too, Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, all these people had this constant sense of looking for and longing for God. 
And I think following them for a period of time in their own particular path is worth the effort. Um, as a person of faith, making these films about Dorothy Day, um, Abraham Joshua Heschel, but yet also having having them on PBS on public television, which is you know secular broadcasting, has that ever? Is it, what's that tension been like, or has there been no tension there? Exploring religion, but in a secular on a secular uh, medium. Yeah, no, that that's a, that's a great question. I, I will confess that um, it's much different now than it might have been thirty years ago. Uh, 30 years ago, there was understanding in the American culture that religion had a place, that it was just understood that on Sunday morning television, anytime you could go into Sunday morning television, turn the dial anywhere, and you'd find some kind of representation of religion, multi-faith gatherings, talk conversations, and things like that. That is not the case anymore. Um, religion has to fight, I think, even a little harder to earn a space on the television spectrum or in the public square as we like to talk about it. So when I'm bringing a film that's on a topic of faith, I have to think about that. And I also have to go into meetings with public television and present my ideas. I have to be able to sit down at a table and argue early on before I start making the film, why this particular film would be interesting not only to me to make, but that it would actually be interested to a wide array of viewership. I have to prove that there's an audience for this, for these, these particular stories that we tell. And uh, that's not something I really had to do in the past, but I, I'm, I'm held accountable now because tele, public television, like all forms of art and all forms of television are in a competitive field. They, they feel as though there's, you know, there's a hundred channels out there we need to be able to get eyeballs to watch what's happening. Will I be able to get eyeballs if I put Double Meyer's film on at this particular time? And I have to make that argument and I better make it well. Uh, and then ultimately, then I better be, make the film that I've actually been able to. That's the thing. I have to be able to deliver the film uh, up to the level of expectation that I created. So there's a twofold challenge there, you know, create an expectation and then actually live up to that expectation. Hmm. Well, one of the film, what films you've made um, explores kind of people's response to a variety of acts of evil, um, such as mass shootings, the Holocaust, 9-11. Could you talk about the making of the film? It's called, I guess it's called The Power of Forgiveness. Talk about, about that. What were you hoping to accomplish with that particular film? Yeah, the, 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 the film, The Power of Forgiveness, um, had a strange beginning because um, I was invited by a friend to come to a national conference that was being held about the subject of forgiveness. So there were going to be all, the, be all these people who had written about it in books or in articles, people who had been studying it, doctors, psychologists, sociologists, all were going to be there, people who had experienced it in their lives, people who felt as though they needed it in their lives, a rather, rather major conference. And I was invited there because that person believed that if I got there, I'd get the forgiveness bug, that I would sort of be turned on by what it was that I saw there. And that's exactly what happened. Um, I spent uh, the better part of a week at this conference, identified these people and turned right around and said, you know, I, I see this. I, I see a film here that we can actually make. It's it is forgiveness is the challenge that comes out of every faith tradition at some way, shape or form. Every faith tradition calls upon humanity to make concessions in their own lives, to work towards, towards, um, towards forgiveness and reconciliation. All, all do. Um, and in different ways with different requirements. But at the same time, all the faith traditions have that in common. And uh, my job was then to, to interpret that storyline uh, through the lives of real people. 
So we told stories about 9-11, like you mentioned, and we told stories about the Amish. And I started down the path. And the further I got down the path, Seth, the more I realized this is a deeper story that I even thought of because it's, 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 it's really personal. It's absolutely challenging emotionally and it's complex. So I began to peel it back and realize that it's not just about me forgiving you for the, something that you did. It's about me forgiving myself for something I had done or failed to do. It's about the timing of it. Do I wait to actually feel forgiveness or do I actually try to extend forgiveness and hope that later on the feelings of forgiveness, the genuine feelings of forgiveness begin to actually catch up with me. So the more we got into it, the more we realized this is multi-layered, but it's also primal in how important it is to humanity. So, and, uh, and, and it gave me a lens, Seth. I have to say that I made that film in nine, uh, 2005, and I don't think there's been a single day since I've made that film that I haven't asked myself the question, how, how does this incident, this thing that I'm witnessing right here in front of me, how does that fit into the, the, the prism of the notion of forgiveness? Uh, and it became a, a really important way for me to look at the world and the people in it and how people behave. So uh, it was one of the great, you know, personally was one of the life shaping moments of my life to have those really ultimately two years with making that film. And when I, after I, I, it took about a year to make the film, then it broadcast on national public television for a period of time. But um, as I do with every film I can, uh, I do a national tour. I'll go out and I'll make presentations of the film and talk to people afterwards. And so, you know, it's, it's a totally different experience to, to see the film on television and then to see it in a room with, you know, 500 people um, all responding at a single moment in the, in the film with gasping or crying or laughing or whatever it is you hope the emotion is gonna be. But then afterwards to have people come forward and talk about the impact of what that film meant to them and all the things that it brought up into, into them. Uh, you know, I, when I make these films, um, I, I, I sort of, I, I, I become in the eyes of people uh, something different with every film. So when I made the film on Bonhoeffer, um, they, everybody thought I was a German history authority, a historian on German history. And when I made the film on forgiveness, people just naturally assumed I was a psychiatrist or a, a pastor or something. And people would come up after the film and ask me, talk to them about their marital relations or their problems with their kids or some other kind of thing. And I would sometimes, I, I, I would be torn between saying, look, I'm just the filmmaker. I just made the movie. <laughs> so you have to figure that out, you know, go back to your wife or talk to your wife about it. But also too, there were many occasions when I, I, I had to say, look, uh, you know, do something here. I, I remember one I remember one occasion where a man, we had a packed house, must have been a thousand people in the theater. And after we finished, this guy comes up, he waits for 20 minutes to come up to speak to me. It's a long line, people coming up afterwards. And he says, you know, with your film, I, I just have to say, I, I've been having a problem for the last couple of years with my son. And I, I, I've decided I'm, I'm, tomorrow I'm going to call him. I just have to call him. And I said, well, why are you waiting till tomorrow? <laughs> And I said, he said, well, I, I don't know. And I gave him my cell phone. I said, I'll be here for a little while longer. Go call your son. And he went away. He came back a couple of minutes later, gave me back my cell phone, thank God, and gave me back my cell phone and said, I, I called my son. We're going to have lunch tomorrow and I can't thank you enough. So those, those are the little moments that, you know, that really feel as though, hey, maybe the film can actually have some good. It actually can make a, 
uh, a little advancement in people's lives. And that, that's why we do this work. Interesting. And I mean, you're kind of, you kind of mentioned it in, your, in, in this last comment, but what other ways have you been challenged in your films? You mentioned about the idea of forgiveness has challenged you personally. Any other ways that in, in a topic that you would take and sort of live in for a few years as you're working on that film, however long it takes, that you were challenged in, um, in different ways? Yeah, no, that's that's a really uh, central question. Um, I think there's a whole, I think there's a whole theology that I've sort of been thinking about around the notion of listening. Uh, you have to do that in your craft, uh, this kind of work that you do. Um, I, it's central to my craft of filmmaking, uh, and that became more and more evident to me when I made the film on chaplains. Uh, and I and I spent, you know months and months with chaplains sitting at the bedside of people in hospitals uh, in Afghanistan, listening to soldiers who felt as though they had been asked to do immoral things and how could they reconcile that. There were so many different storylines that came out of that chaplain's film. Mm. But I really learned the sort of the sacred art of listening. And now I've come back and tried to think about that and how that actually applies or should apply to the work that I do as a, as a filmmaker. And I've, I've become convinced that listening is a real reflection of my own spiritual health. Uh, and I can see in my own life the times that I'm not listening the way that I should, uh, that I'm, my, there's, a, there's a narrative going on in my head that I can't get away from and that blocks me from listening to somebody else who's sharing something that's deeply troubling, deeply important to them. Uh, and I'm not being a very good listener because my, my own sort of sense of spiritual self is off balance right now. Watching the chaplains, I think, convinced me that that is really a special gift and it really demands spiritual centering to be able to sit and actually listen to people, to understand what it is they're trying to say and what they're not saying at the same time. And so that's one of the things that I've, I've been working on as a result of doing a film that I did now a couple of years ago, a number of years ago, uh, but the repercussions of it and the, and the way that it impacted me has stayed with me now for many years. Mm. You're listening to um, Intersections on KSQD Santa Cruz, and we're talking with Martin Doblemeyer, documentary filmmaker. Um, and I was going to ask you about Chaplin's, that um, film particularly, and, and I was curious, what, what was it about that topic that drew you to do a story on Chaplin's, film on Chaplin's? <laughs> No, the simple answer is that I'm in the religion world, um, the multi-faith religion world, and I know a lot of chaplains, and I knew that they had never had a film done about them. And then we sat down and thought about it, and the complications of doing it, the challenges of doing it, would it work? And we decided, yes. Um, I, I really wanted to do it to honor one of these professions that I don't think gets enough attention. I think you have chaplains in hospitals that really do remarkable work. Chaplains in prisons, Seth. I mean, the work that the chaplains are doing in prison is just remarkable all across this country. Uh, and chaplains in uh, pediatric centers, uh, chaplains on the police department, police force. I mean, these are people doing really important, noble work who don't get enough credit. Sometimes it's even dangerous work. Chaplains on the battlefields. We were over in Afghanistan with the, 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 lead, the America's lead chaplain in, in Afghanistan at the time. Uh, and they just, they're unsung heroes. They don't get enough credit. They deserve a lot more credit than they get. We thought with our film, we could, we could maybe help to, you know, even the scales out a little bit. Mm -hmm. I mean, your film, you had a film um, 
called an American conscience that, that looks at the life and impact of Reynold Niebuhr on American society over the last 50 years. Um, a lot of people might not be familiar with him. He's, a, he's referred to in your film as a public theologian and looks at the impact uh, he's had on, on some of our country's recent political leaders, including presidents Obama, uh, Bush, and Carter. And um, I learned a few years ago that former FBI director James Comey, who himself had a challenging run-in with the former president, wrote his undergraduate thesis comparing the different views of faith and politics between Jerry Falwell and Reynold Niebuhr. Uh, I thought that was really interesting. Could you discuss what a public theologian is and who Niebuhr was and why you chose to make a film about him? Mm -hmm. uh, well, Reinhold Niebuhr was the public theologian of America's 20th century. He what does really that mean, was. public theologian? Yeah, man, that's, I, I think what it is, is that I, I think the best way to describe it is that it's someone who studies theology in depth, but they, and they write about it and think about it, but their insights are so good that people in the media and the public sphere call upon them to be a voice to try and help us unpack some of the complicated moral dilemmas that America's social policies and political policies and economic policies fall into. So when you want to try and make sense out of it, they, people would try to turn to a public theolo a theologian. And by virtue of that, they'd put him on a television show or a radio show or write an article, not so much about him, but what does Reinhold Niebuhr say about the nuclear war, escalation of nuclear weaponry, the economic imbalance in the world. So by virtue of that, he becomes a theologian with a public public position. So that's what's making him a public theologian. So, so um, he's, he's making his mark really in the 50s, 60s uh, in this country at a time you can imagine where uh, it's post-World War II, America's flying high, and Niebuhr's language uh, that we had sort of reached a sort of um, an, an economic, we had reached an imbalance between our power and our purpose. We had too much a, a sense of our own authority and that we had the power to change everything. Not enough sense of our own original sin as humanity, as human beings who were failed and sometimes let our ego and our self-centeredness and our sense of what we can accomplish on our own overcome us, give us bad direction, give us bad insight. So uh, it's that kind of balance that um, I think people in power often turn to. And that's why Niebuhr became such a, a popular figure, because when you're, when you're sitting down and, and you have your hands on the nuclear button, like Jimmy Carter did in the 1970s as president, and really faced serious questions, Niebuhr became a, a touchstone for him. You know, how do we think about this? Uh, Niebuhr was famous for saying, you know, when you're in a position of power, not all the decisions that you make are going to be good ones. Sometimes what you have to settle for is the lesser of evils and find a way to be able to accommodate that. It's still the morally right thing to do. Uh, but that's, that's, not the, that's not why you got into this business. You got into the business because you thought you were going to be making these great decisions that would change everything in such a positive way. Sometimes the decisions that you have are simply the lesser of, of evils. And it was also Niebuhr who wrote in a wonderful book called Moral Man and Immoral Society. It's, many people think it's sort of like the, the best book ever written on Christian moral ethics. And fundamentally, what Niebuhr was saying was that as human beings, as human beings, we're perfectly capable of making decisions that prioritize the other. We're able to sort of put ourselves second to the needs of another person. 
recognize their needs, hear their voices, hear their cries. But when you get people together in groups, there's no such thing, Niebuhr would say, as a benevolent group. That just doesn't happen. Countries, communities tend mostly to be self-protective and they'll make decisions based on that. Uh, and that sense of charity gets compromised by efficiency, expediency. Uh, and so when his, the title of the book again is Moral Man and Immoral Society, that notion of the balance between human beings as individuals are perfectly capable about, about acting in very moral ways. But when groups get together, nations get together, communities and tribes get together, oftentimes though, those values get compromised. And we see that unfolding all the time. I mean, uh, Niebuhr was a prophetic figure in his own way because he saw, he created the lenses through which a lot of us still continue to, to think. And that's why he became a real touchstone for people like James Comey and Obama, Jimmy Carter, people like that. Uh, he, he's, he really was a remarkable figure. And who does he become really good friends with? He becomes really good friends with uh, Abraham Joshua Heschel, who's, uh, who's just literally across the street at another academic institution in New York at Jewish Theological Seminary, Niebuhr is at Union Theological Seminary and literally across the street is Heschel's school, which is the Jewish Theological Seminary. Both of them often felt as though they were not understood in their own communities, and both of them found friendship and understanding in each other. that's sort of consistent is that I think a similar mind, similar hearts find each other. They, they just do. I mean, uh, these were two brilliant men, uh, Niebuhr and Heschel, and they just found a way to connect to each other, supporting each other and understanding what kind of what others' plans were and programs were, and they, and they just found ways to support each other. I, I thought that was actually very beautiful. Mm -hmm. How do you hope, um, you've, talked, you've talked a lot about different how you, different topics that you choose, how do you want to impact viewers who take a look at the film like An American Conscience about Reinhold Niebuhr or, or um, about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the, the Christian theologian in Germany who resisted the Nazis? How do you want people to be affected? Do you want them to do anything, move them to action? What is, as you're putting these together, as you're editing these films, what kind of impact do you want to have on your viewers? Well, I, I absolutely need to feel as though um, I've told a good story. Uh, and that I've actually been able to sort of galvanize their attention and their emotions for the hour or two hours that we're actually doing that. Um, and, and then maybe if I, I can say, maybe give them a different way of looking at the world, try and see through a different lens. Um, if I'm doing a, a biographical film, I sort of open them up to a character that they maybe didn't know enough about. Maybe they knew something about Heschel or Niebuhr or Bonhoeffer, but didn't know a lot. And as a result of the film, now they've become more informed about that person and they're propelled to go out and read a little bit more and think about it. But most importantly, uh, that they've been open to the idea that ideas matter, convictions matter, and that uh, reading and taking seriously the, the, the scholarship around what you, what you want to believe in, taking scholarship seriously. I think one, one thing that um, this recent series that I've just done now called Prophetic Voices, where we've put all these five 
seminal characters of the 20th century together into one collection. Uh, one of the things they all have in common. So Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Reinhold Niebuhr, Howard Thurman, Dorothy Day, Abraham Heschel, all have in common that they were absolutely brilliant, inspired writers. And how they are living evidence that the written word sustains. How many people over these last years I've turned to and they said, oh, we read Niebuhr still 50 years later. We still love reading Howard Thurman or Heschel or Bonhoeffer. These are people who are writing now half a century ago or longer. And the words somehow, the ideas that they were able to express in their words and their language, they sustain. And I really wonder whether or not the kind of culture that we've created in the 20, this part of the 21st century, and we're knee deep into the 21st century, is not really uh, developing the skill and the talent of writing for the longer arc. We're writing for the short term, uh, you know, it's quick and dirty, uh, get people's attention and then move on. These people were writing with a longer arc in mind. Uh, they understood that they had to get to really central issues, write about them in depth, think about it, continue to evolve those ideas. Those, those are the kinds of things I think um, that really send a signal to the current culture uh, that we've maybe lost the sincerity with which they approached writing. And maybe we've walked away from something that too soon that we need to go back and reimagine ourselves and the, and the importance and the gifts of writing. Mm. One of the great books that Howard Thurman wrote uh, uh, was called Jesus and the Disinherited. It was the book that Martin Luther King carried around in his briefcase as he was involved in all the marches, including the famous Selma March. King carried Martin, uh, uh, Thurman's book, Jesus and the Disinherited, in his briefcase wherever he went. When you study to look and look at the story of how Thurman came to write Jesus and the Disinherited, he publishes it in 1949. But he'd actually begun to work on the ideas of it in 1935. There are tracks of his writings, essays that sort of loosely begin to shape out the notion of Jesus and the disinherited that won't actually culminate, won't blossom fully into a book until 1949 when he releases the book finally. So Thurman's one of those kind of characters. Niebuhr certainly is that kind of character. Heschel the same. They're working on ideas, fundamental ideas that they keep evolving and refining and refining uh, and that you see that it gets expressed again and again in their different works. But that's because they take writing seriously. And I, I question whether or not our current culture takes writing seriously anymore. Mm. Could you talk a little bit about Howard Thurman? Uh, some people might not be familiar with, with him, African-American pastor, theologian. Yes, the, uh, the grandson of enslaved people. His grandmother was, uh, was enslaved in Florida. Uh, that's where he grew up. Uh, and so he would spend time with her. Howard Thurman often said that he learned more about God from his grandmother than he actually did in seminary. Isn't that interesting? So uh, Thurman hears all these stories about how she was treated and abused, all the struggles that she had even after slavery had officially ended in, in this country. And uh, then Jim Crow, uh, he grows up in Florida at a time when he's witnessing the tragedies that were happening because of KKK, the Ku Klux Klan. So he is no stranger to uh, the abuse and to racism, deep racism and segregation, but he's actually brilliant. He winds up being one of the first people in the state of Florida, African-Americans to be able to uh, get through beyond the eighth grade. He gets accepted into academies and then he winds up going to Rochester Theological School, comes back to Morehouse, 
and then uh, and then sort of gets ordained as a minister. And he winds up at Howard University and eventually at Boston, at Boston University. Uh, but in the meantime, um, he's having extraordinary experiences in his life that are all compiling as experiences that he can sort of filter through his personhood of scholarship and personal experiences uh, that actually sort of grow him in a totally different way. So uh, Thurman is one of the first people, he's the first African-American invited by Gandhi to come to India in 1935 and study nonviolent resistance under Gandhi, which he does. He comes back shortly afterwards to the United States and it's then he begins to plant the seeds of what will eventually sort of permeate into the civil rights movement. So Thurman has some claim on saying that the reason why the civil rights movement was a nonviolent movement was because of what he was teaching and speaking and teaching to people like Martin Luther King, who were in the audiences when Howard Thurman would preach at Boston University. Mm. Thurman actually uh, spent, Thurman walks away from a, a money job too. He's, he's, um, he's, a, he's the rector at Howard University, has a good job. He's got a couple of kids now, uh, wife and a couple of kids. And yet he gets an invitation to come to San Francisco to start what becomes the church, um, um, the church for the fellowship of all peoples. And the church is a dream that Thurman's vaguely had in his own mind for years, that we could actually begin to create a church uh, where we invited people of all different faiths, all different cultures, all different races to be. If you remember back into, into the 1940s, clearly the 11 o'clock hour was the most segregated hour in America. Thurman wanted to do what he could do to break that down, break that into pieces. So in 1944, in the midst of the war, he accepts this invitation, goes out to San Francisco for a job that pays him $200 a month, wife and two kids, to start to co-found this church called the Church for the Fellowship of All People. And this is where he begins to gain traction as somebody who's really convict, convicted in terms of creating spaces and environments with people of different faiths and different colors and different backgrounds and ethnic uh, ethnic heritage can all come together and worship in a common way so this is the kind of man howard thurman is he's mm. he's he puts his money where his mouth is he believes that uh, god is calling him to do this and uh, and 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 he's not going to stop he becomes one of the most famous preachers in the 1950s in america so he's got, got all these remarkable credentials and uh having never met him but i interviewed so many people who did um, he left a lasting impression on a lot of really wonderful people. And that tells me he was extraordinary in his own way. The church that he founded, the Church for the Fellowship of All People, is still going in San Francisco. Uh, the pastor now is Dorsey Blake. Uh, and the church continues. And, and, and you still see the imprint of Howard Thurman all over that church. Hmm. Interesting. Um, in our in our current um, cultural and political climate today, where where you see religion itself has become politicized and often used as a weapon in mass media, as a person of faith yourself, who is involved in media, how do your how do you navigate these times as a filmmaker and as a person of faith? 
Well, I, I think you have to be willing to accept the fact that we're a divided nation, deeply divided on so many levels, like you've implied with your question. <laughs> it's troubling. Um, and yet at the same time, I think it would be naive to think that we're going to be able to galvanize everyone together and get them all under the same tent. Um, I, I, I no longer hold to that. I think what's more important right now is to set up your tent, declare your space, behave in a moral way, talk about issues that are really important, which I think are justice issues and balance issues, fairness, and what God is calling us to do in terms of being moral people. I think once you set that as the tone, uh, you hang your flag on that and, and, and hope to God people come. It, I think we, you, you just can't right now assume that you're going to be able to, or even try to get everybody together to reconcile. I think the, the climate right now is absolutely too volatile. I think it's, it's headed down a road that I think volatility, there's more volatility ahead. And, and I think the only thing that we can do right now uh, is to, de to decide where do you, you know, like the Eagles said, you know, to find a place, make your stand and take it easy. That's about the best thing <laughs> that we can all do right now. And, and I think trying to understand what God is calling me to do and who God's calling me to be and the work that God feels as though I get an opportunity to do through these films is, is my way of making my stand. You're listening to Intersections on KSQD Santa Cruz. We're talking to Martin Doblemeyer uh, about his filmmaking. And I was curious, what is, what is your favorite documentary that you did not make? A film that for you stands out that is not one of your films. Oh, that's, that's a really hard uh, question. Um, well, I just, uh, uh, I just watched uh, just recently again, uh, I'm Not Your Negro, a story of James Baldwin. Mm. Wish I had made that film. That's a, that's a really wonderful film. Um, I, I I watch a lot of drama films. I think it's a good film. Uh, I think as a documentary filmmaker, I probably less watch less documentaries and more dramas. So I'm watching dramas and television series and everything. It's it's it, you know the thing that's so amazing to me. I mentioned earlier today that uh, in this interview that um, when I started there was a there was an appreciation for religious, organized, institutionalized religion that I don't see right now, 40 years later. I think the other difference that is happening in the culture is the, the incredible volume of good television and film that's out there. And I have to admit uh, that there are lots of great filmmakers. I, I like Ken Burns. Uh, he's on my network. He's in some ways competing with me uh, for the airtime, but you know, I, I watched Hemingway and I liked Hemingway. I thought he did a really, really good job with it. I love the television series, The Black Church, that was just on recently, made by uh, Henry Louis Gates. I, 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 there would have been an element of me saying, I, I knew a lot of people in the film, frankly, I can tell you that. But um, I wish I had made that film. I thought about that too. It was a great, great documentary series that, we're doing, that he did. So um, I, I am not the kind of person who believes that I'm the only guy on the block making documentary films. There's plenty of good filmmakers out there making really, really good films. And I, and I guess I'm thankful every day to God that I actually get a chance to do this work, that I still am doing this work after 40 years. Yeah. Um, you know, as I was, I was you know, learning about the work that you've done, I, I was thinking about um, filmmakers who, you know, you could kind of tell their sort of style in many of their films, similar kind of themes and issues they're wrestling with. And I thought of Frederick Weissman, um, a filmmaker who, you know, uncovers different, you know, focus at different American institutions throughout his career, high schools, hospitals, state legislatures, the welfare system, sort of exploring what these institutions, what these institutions look like. As you think about yourself as a filmmaker going forward in this, 
really divisive time, as you had mentioned. How do you see yourself? What kind of work do you see yourself doing in the future, the next five to 10 years, addressing the concerns that are on your heart to address? Um, well, uh, first of all, the idea, I'm 71. So the idea of me doing 10 more years of filmmaking, thank you. I hope to God I get 10 more years of being able and privileged of being able to make films for 10 more years. And I like Frederick Weissman. I remember uh, as a college student uh, at Boston University going off to the theaters uh, with groups of people together to see his film. They were long, rambling, turn on the camera and follow people around kind of reality filmmaking that he did. That was his style, Frederick Weissman. Uh, but I thought he really made it an important contribution at the time in the in the 70s to what was going on in terms of filmmaking. And I'm sure that that, you know, subconsciously had a had an impact on me. For me, I I I intend to make films as long as I can get the, the opportunity to do it. It's difficult. It's more difficult now than ever to raise the money. I have to raise the money for every single film. Uh, but we're right now in the process of making a new two hour special for national public television on a topic called Sabbath. So we're going to take the idea of a commandment that calls us all to rest one day a week, which we've totally lost in this country. Christian Jews just lost it. Um, we're working 24-7. The pandemic has simply um, amplified those senses of losing a sense of time and everything else like that. So we, um, we're, we're taking on a, the, the idea of Sabbath uh, and how, what that says about tradition and ritual and community. You know, I've, I've learned that the notion of Sabbath, the idea that you'll actually rest, stop for a, a day, at least 24 hour, 25 hour period, assumes that you can trust the other person not to outwork you on that day and get a leg up on you, that they'll rest too. And that there's all kinds of notions around Sabbath that we're just beginning to unpack. The, the idea of social justice is, is baked into the notion of Sabbath. Care of the environment, not only human beings have to rest, but the environment needs its rest, cycles of planting and things like that. So we're, we're, we're excited about the film and we'll be running with this film now for the next year. We hope to have it finished by um, and out for public television uh, um, a year from April. But um, after that, I, I don't quite know, Seth. I'll have to take it. We're taking them on a film at a time. I have a small staff of people. We love doing this work. We, and we take one film at a time and see where we're going to go after that. Wonderful. If, uh, how can people see your films? Um, people are not familiar with your work. Would you recommend a f your, your favorite film or a film that kind of gives an, an insight into the work that you do? And where can they see your films? Well, um, if, if you want them on DVD, uh, well, first of all, you can come to our website. Our, we're Journey Films, J-O-U-R-N-E-Y-F-I-L-M-S dot com, Journey Films. And, uh, or you can go to Amazon. This latest release that we have is we took these five last biographies that I've done on Reinhold Niebuhr and Abraham Heschel, Howard Thurman, Dorothy Day, and Reinhold Niebuhr and Bonhoeffer and uh, collect, put them all together as uh, prophetic voices. They're on Amazon. I think it opened at number eight on Amazon under documentaries when it was just released. So I haven't checked where it is now, but it opened up at number eight on Amazon for documentary films. We were happy about that. I mean, we're running around with religion films and we got to number eight. I thought that was pretty good. Uh, but um, that's how they can get it if they want them on the DVD. But if they want also, if they want them digitally, they can come to our, our, our site, journeyfilms.com. Um, and a lot of these films individually, Seth, are available at public television. They're all also occasionally broadcasting on public television. So you can see them there. Got it. 
Well, thank you so much for uh, meeting with us today, Martin, and spending some time with us on Intersections. Martin Dovmeyer is a documentary filmmaker whose work explores social and spiritual themes that have been broadcast on public television. Thank you so much for your time today. That's great questions. A great conversation, Seth. I enjoyed it a lot. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Intersections. To subscribe, click follow in your podcast app and make sure to leave a review. All archived podcasts and information about our guests can be found on our website, intersectionspodcast.org. On our website, you can also listen to Faith Matters radio conversations featuring panels of spiritual leaders discussing how their faith traditions approach a variety of topics. You can contact Intersections by emailing info at intersectionspodcast.org. I'm Seth Shapiro, and join us on our next episode where we will continue exploring the crossroads of ideas on intersections. Intersections.